Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science melt into your mind. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. On this edition we'll feature the sweet, sweet science of chocolate and talking tummies. First up, here's the news with Lindsay Greymatter. Forget the axis of evil and meet the axis of internal well-being. Publishing in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this week, a team of researchers led by John Cryan, working out of North Carolina State University, have shown that gut probiotics, in particular the bacterium Lactobacillus rhamnosus, may have a central role in preventing stress and anxiety-related disorders. Working in what scientists have dubbed the microbe gut brain axis, a healthy gut population of bacteria may not only prevent poor digestion and the development of nasty gut diseases like irritable bowel syndrome, but also the psychological problems of depression and anxiety, which regularly accompany bowel diseases. Using the mouse microbe gut brain axis as a model for human health, the scientists showed that feeding mice up with lactobacillus leads to an increase in the activity of genes in the mouse brain, which are involved in regulating stress and anxiety. And just for you neuroscientists out there, it's the GABA-B receptor that I'm talking about. And of course, with the mouse, our human brains share this important gene. But it isn't just the brain's gene expression which is changed by lactobacillus in the gut. Mice dosed with lactobacillus also show a remarkable resilience to the psychological problems of depression and anxiety, which amazingly you can measure in mice. So how, pray tell, can information about the presence of gut bacteria travel from the gut to the brain and confer all these amazing health benefits? Well, being good scientists, Cryan's team included a control group of mice whose vagus nerve was disabled. Now, this is the big nerve which links our guts to our brains. And fascinatingly, mice fed lactobacillus but lacking this neuronal link from gut to brain show no change in GABA gene expression and in fact become more depressed when experimentally stressed than mice with intact neuronal circuitry. Now, this work is part of a flourishing field of biology looking at the importance of our gut flora. And it's certainly food for thought when you consider that by the time we're 30, most of us will have been prescribed about 10 separate courses of antibiotics. A scientist recently sealed himself off inside a chamber containing plants for 48 hours in a bid to demonstrate the importance of plants in producing oxygen for the natural environment. Professor Ian Stewart, a geoscience professor from Plymouth University, performed the scientific stunt as part of his upcoming BBC2 program, How Plants Make the World. Plants use photosynthesis to convert light energy into energy for the plant, such as sugars. 
It is during this process that they consume carbon dioxide and produce oxygen as a byproduct. For the experiment itself, numerous large lights were stationed in and around the chamber to give enough light energy for the plants to photosynthesize. Professor Stewart was sealed inside the 12 square metre chamber with only 120 small plants and 30 large plants for company. These 150 plants were the only source of oxygen inside the chamber and hence Professor Stewart relied on them for his survival. The plants in turn required carbon dioxide, so Professor Stewart pedalled on an exercise bike in order to produce enough carbon dioxide for the plants. Although the stunt was successful, the levels of oxygen were lower than normal, equivalent to levels present at an altitude of 4,500 metres above sea level. Therefore, there were side effects and he suffered from strong headaches and a lack of energy. There were doctors on site to monitor him and make sure nothing went drastically wrong, however. It wasn't all a headache, though, as he did have a laptop, hammock and an exercise bike to keep him entertained. The full results of the experiment won't be released until the BBC2 program How Plants Make the World is aired next year. So back on the 4th of July edition of Diffusion, I reported about unprecedented deaths of turtles and dugongs along the Queensland coasts. And the cause of death was unknown at this point in time, but recently it's been established that it's actually the death of seagrass beds due to flooding. So what's happened is the polluted water from the floods has gone out into the coastal environment has clouded the water and caused massive die-off of the seagrass beds, which has had catastrophic knock-on effects in the sensitive marine environment, resulting in the death of many turtles and dugongs, which is very sad. And so it's difficult to see where they can go forward from this because it's just a matter of waiting, for, I guess, for the seagrass to recover again. Galit Segev is a chef and biochemist combining her love of food and science in public talks on the science of food. Galit is a volunteer for Vision Australia, creating recipes and cooking classes for people with vision impairment. At the Ultimo Science Festival, she spoke to Ian Wolfe about her love of food, her love of chocolate, and how chocolate is made, and the science of tempering chocolate. Oh, I love chocolate. What I love about chocolate is the, the complexity. I love the fact that it is quite uh, challenging to work with. If you're tempering your chocolate, you just need to know what you do because otherwise it doesn't really work for you. I like to try different combinations of flavors with the chocolate. And I really enjoy doing recipe development for different uh, chocolate um, so, yeah, I really, really enjoy it. And I, I love to know why. I like to understand the science behind it because I believe that when you understand things, you have better results you can create. You have the freedom to create when you understand things. If we were to look for some of your recipes, where would we look? 
I'm very lazy, so uh -huh. I put just one recipe on my website. Um, but I do cooking classes in um, the essential ingredient, and I do cooking classes in people, uh, like a one-on-one or small groups in people's places if they are interested. Um, and yes, this is definitely something that is my that is on my to-do list to add more recipes into my website. But so far, I have really nice recipe of uh, earthquake cookies, which are really fun to make because you make the cookies and you roll them, it's a chocolate cookies, and you roll them in icing sugar. And when you bake them, they just crack. So you have this white icing sugar crusty coat, but it's with veins or like an earthquake uh, dark chocolate uh, veins in them. So they're quite uh, dramatic look and really nice to see them uh, baking in the oven. I love that. That sounds terrific. So tell me, how is chocolate made? Chocolate is... Uh, a bit similar to wine. So you start with harvesting the cacao pods and you scoop out the cacao seeds that are white at this stage, coated by this white pulp and you need to ferment the cacao seeds to develop the chocolate flavor. And after you ferment your cacao seeds, you need to dry them and then to roast them and shell them to remove the shell. They look at this, at this stage like almonds and then the center of the cacao beans of the cocoa beans is crushed and you have your cocoa nibs and when the cocoa nibs ground you get what we call cocoa mass and from the cocoa mass you make chocolate or being more accurate you make the dark chocolate and milk chocolate from cocoa mass when you make your white chocolate you're actually using just the cocoa butter. You don't use any of the cocoa powder component of your cocoa mass. So basically, if you take your cocoa mass and you press it, press it, you will end up with two products, the cocoa butter and the cocoa powder. And cocoa butter will be around 54% and the cocoa powder will be the rest. So, uh, when we have our chocolate, obviously we have lots of sugar. So in a milk chocolate uh, bar that is 200 uh, grams, you will have around 22 teaspoons of sugar, which is quite amazing. When you have the darker chocolate, the highest cocoa solids you have in your chocolate, the less sugar you have and the more intense chocolate flavor that you will end up with. So if you have um, chocolate that is 85% cocoa solids, the flavor will be really intense and bitter and very chocolatey in comparison to white chocolate or milk chocolate or even if you compare that to a lower percentage uh, of cocoa solids in a dark chocolate like 50% or 54%. And white chocolate, how is that different? White chocolate is different because uh, it doesn't have both of the component or both, it doesn't have both of the components of the cocoa mass it has just the cocoa butter so basically you don't have what we um, identified as chocolate flavor it is very sweet it's very creamy but we don't have the chocolate flavor that comes from the cocoa powder um, component of your cacao beans tell me a bit about tempering all right, tempering is a big uh, subject and maybe it's a one hour talk of itself, but basically, I'm just going to keep it very basic, but tempering 
is a process that we use to end up with a certain type of crystal in our cocoa butter. It, we are after crystal number five and six and by having a different regimes of heating your chocolate, cooling that and reheating, you ending up with this desirable crystal. And the characteristic of this desirable crystal is that you will have chocolate that have gloss and have snap. So if you have the cocoa butter solidified or crystallized in the desirable way, you will have high quality chocolate because you will have the gloss, you will have the snap, you will have the nice texture that uh, we are after. So I hope that I answered your question. Yes, and the melting point of chocolate is very precise, isn't it? When you temper your chocolate, you need to use a very precise regime of uh, heating, cooling and heating. And I won't get into those temperatures because they are different for... If you want to temper dark chocolate, you will have a different... You'll use different temperatures than you would use in white and milk chocolate. So this is... Uh, not that this is hard to do, but you just need to have a bit of... Uh, you need to give it a try and, 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 and see how it works for you. But you need to be quite accurate in terms of the temperature. Because if you don't temper your chocolate properly, you will end up with maybe chocolate that will be a bit sticky. Uh, maybe chocolate that will have a white powdery appearance. You might end up with chocolate that will be very crumbly rather than really nice... Uh, tight uh, texture that will give you the snap that we're after and the gloss. So it's, it's sort of like in material science, if you're tempering steel or, or other things, you have to get, if you get the right temperatures, you get the right crystals. If you don't have the right crystals, you don't have the, the right same product. type of material or the same qualities. Exactly. I think this is exactly the same. This is, this is a really good uh, comparison. Mm. Yeah. And chocolate is fermented, isn't it? Yes, chocolate is quite similar to wine. You need to ferment the cacao seeds to develop the chocolate flavor. So if, let's say, that you are harvesting your cacao pods and you open them and you have those cacao seeds that have around them this white, luscious pulp, if you eat them at that stage, they don't taste like chocolate. They're a bit tart and sweet, but they don't taste like chocolate. So to develop the chocolate flavor, you must ferment your cacao seeds. That's one of the processes that will develop the chocolate flavor. The next one will be the drying and the roasting of the, um, of the cacao uh, beans. So quite similar to wine and chocolate that comes from different regions around the world will have different profile um, characteristics so quite similar to wine I would say yeah so do you need to educate your chocolate palette the way you would a wine palette yeah I would say so yeah and I think that the more you try different type of chocolates the more you get familiar with the flavors and yeah I think this is quite uh, quite similar yeah but, uh, the cacao trees are very picky and they're quite uh, precious and they just grow 20 degrees north and south to the equator so they are quite uh, fussy plants so you could grow them in Australia but they didn't get very good quality yes they did a study in Australia when they tried to grow cacao be cacao trees and they managed to get fruits and managed to get cacao beans but they didn't think that it's going to be uh, commercially viable so 
they didn't get the yield that they were after. And maybe just to, to say that, I find it quite fascinating that from one cacao pod, you get between 20 to 50 um, cacao seeds. So it's just a handful, hands full of uh, cocoa beans in the end of the day. So it's really low yield. So that's very precious yes. gold, isn't it? Galit Segev, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Galit Segev, chef and scientist, speaking about the secrets of chocolate at the Ultimo Science Festival where she presented chocolate from around the world for people to try and white chocolate ganache made from white chocolate, lime juice and basil. You can find Galit's website at www.galit.com.au. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the semicolon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Victoria Bond spoke to her sister Dorothy about the challenges of living in the Democratic Republic of Congo and coordinating healthcare services to its remote areas. So this week I have a special treat for the Diffusion listeners. I've been joined in the studio by my sister, Ms. Dorothy Bond, as well as by Monica Wonderland, and we'll be speaking to Dorothy about some of her experiences in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were doing out there? Um, sure. First of all, I'm flattered that you consider me a special treat. <laughs> it's nice to have evolved uh, beyond just big sister. Um, That's but... because you can beat me up. So I'm, <laughs> I'm used to being polite. Even though you're probably a, f- a good foot taller than me. Um, so, yeah, I did live in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and I worked for uh, a pretty large NGO called Catholic Relief Services. And what I did is I managed a primary health care project where we essentially trained doctors, we rehabilitated hospitals and health centers, and then we distributed uh, medication and other medical devices like scales um, to weigh babies. And this was um, in pretty isolated areas. Uh, the area that I worked in particularly was called Kole. And so to get there, typically you would take a plane to Loja, a little small city um, in the middle, right in the middle of the country, and then you would have to take a land cruiser for about eight hours on the worst roads you've ever seen in your life. So what were some of the programs and medications that you were offering to people? 
This was pretty basic. You have to keep in mind that some of the health centers were essentially huts that had maybe a plank of wood and on top of it a bottle of aspirin, and that was considered a health center. So what we really wanted to do was to get um, a basic level of service to the people in the area of Kole, and that included um, childhood vaccination, tetanus and polio shots for some of the adults, prenatal care for women so that they could give birth in hospitals in, in relatively clean conditions and have access to cesareans if they needed to. We also saw a lot of malaria, so we gave out uh, malaria as a prophylaxis, and we also distributed insecticide-treated nets. So nothing too big. Um, you know, if they needed surgery or something a lot more complicated, they had to walk for a week or two to uh, the nearest village or to a hospital that was managed by foreign nuns um, who had access to a lot better services. As a foreigner, you were coming in to provide these services, and you also mentioned that there were... What about the country itself? Was it providing health care to its own citizens, or or is it, was it really dependent on foreign aid? I would say in Congo it was primarily dependent on foreign aid, uh, I think some of the bigger international organizations are trying to change that. You have um, the Global Fund and UNDP that are trying to actually give money to various organizations and the Ministry of Health so that the Ministry of Health can manage its health programming a little closer. But the reality of it is that the Ministry of Health in the country doesn't have a lot of money, so what you see is you see a lot of NGOs doing some of the basic health care it's a little tricky, and as you said, there's a lot of foreigners that are involved in that, and we don't always understand the culture very well, even if we've been there for a long time. That being said, there are some really, really proficient doctors in Congo. Um, the sad thing is that often what happens is they're sent to a very rural area, and they don't have access to any of the supplies that they need, and they're not retrained. So you could be in this really small village for four years and not hear anything from headquarters, be paid maybe two or three times that year and really not know what you're supposed to be recertified in and not know when the next supply of scales or IVs is going to come in. So it's a very tenuous, hard life as a doctor. Yeah, it's like you have all the knowledge but none of the resources to mm -hmm. do your job. Yeah. That must be very frustrating. I imagine, yeah. Okay, so I just have two questions. The first one, what is the most prevalent disease? And secondly, what's the most easily treated? I would say possibly, I'm going to answer your second question first. I would think that the most easily preventable diseases are those that you can vaccinate against. And I think that's why vaccination services to kids is really considered an essential health package. Um, you know, it's a quick prick in the arm and then you're vaccinated forever for a lot of these vaccines. And then you get you need booster doses on, on a few of them. But um, uh, what's tricky is keeping the cold chain for these vaccines. So the vaccines need to be kept cold until they get to the child. And so imagine a country where there's no electricity. Um, it's really tricky to get a vaccine from the central city all the way down to a very rural areas. And sometimes what we do is we'd give vaccines to um, people who would push their bikes down for about a week and keep them in coolers on the back of their bikes and hope that the cold chain would be maintained and that the vaccine was actually still good when we gave it to kids. 
In terms of the most prevalent disease, I'll probably punt it back to my sister, who's actually a med student and who probably can give you a better idea of that. Well, I, I never went to the Democratic Republic of Congo, but I did go to Tanzania. So it, it's obviously going to be a different set of diseases, probably. But definitely what we saw a lot of, a lot, was malaria. Malaria, malaria, malaria. And that's another one of those diseases that's pretty preventable if you have good protection against mosquito bites. The, the actual medications that travelers take when, they, when they're traveling, say doxycycline, for instance, those aren't all that effective. They only protect you 60% of the time against malaria. The, the main thing you can do to protect yourself against malaria is to not get bit in the first place. Of course, what the states did to eradicate malaria was spray everything with DDT, kill that, that pool of mosquitoes, and now there's no more malaria in the states. But Unfortunately, DDT is no longer something that's used. Another thing that I saw in Tanzania, so you had these malaria, you had infectious diseases, you had pretty stuff that was pretty florid that you, you wouldn't see in Australia, but you also had all the Australian stuff too. So you had yeah. diabetes, you had heart failure, you had hypertension, you had strokes. All of those things are also affecting people. Just because they're born in Tanzania doesn't mean they don't suffer from the same diseases that we do. And... Um, Another big killer was the antenatal postnatal period. So women delivering children, childbirth is quite dangerous and up until 100 years ago was the biggest killer of women, which people forget now that we have childbirth, which is pretty routine, which happens in hospitals or supervised at home, but definitely still quite dangerous in, in Tanzania and I'm sure probably in, in Congo as well. That was Dorothy Bond speaking about her experiences in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. And tell us your ideas and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website at www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Lindsay Gray Matter, Victoria Bond, and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe with technical assistance from Therese Chen in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the semicolon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, ha, ha,